Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Sandeep Gupta, Vice President of Product and Strategy for Renewables at Spark Cognition. Sandeep has been in the renewable energy space for over 15 years, covering everything from modeling to now leading product strategy and development. Sandeep, thank you for being on the show today. Can you add in what what did I miss in your introduction and tell me a little bit about Spark Cognition? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, it is a true pleasure to talk to you and your audience. Um, so as you mentioned, I am a VP of Product and Strategy uh, for Renewables at Spark Cognition. Spark Cognition is a global leader in AI solutions. Um, we build AI solutions that predict future outcomes, optimizing processes, um, and even preventing cyber attacks using our uh, Deep Armor product. We partner with Word's industry leaders to analyze, optimize, and learn from data and to augment human intelligence and drive kind of profitable growth and achieve operational excellence. How do we do that? We do that using AI which kind of started back in, you know, I mean, a long time ago, but really in last decade, enterprises have really recognized the value of AI and are starting to implement. But, you know, working with a partner like Spark Cognition, they are able to not only just implement, but scale these AI solutions in many different applications. So in just broadly, that's what Spark Cognition does for the customers. That is very cool. And so today we are going to be focusing on the renewable energy space, but really Spark Cognition, you guys kind of cover a whole lot of different industries. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So we serve uh, industries from energy, um, aerospace, uh, defense. Uh, We also have financial product, um, marine, rail. So primarily industrial AI uh, solutions, but we do have some other areas like financial and insurance space. Very cool. Now, when we're talking about AI, artificial intelligence, what, I guess, what exactly does that mean in terms of renewable energy? Yeah, that's a good question. AI is a term that is, you know, uh, used, misused a lot. Uh, but, you know, in general, AI is, you know, as most users nowadays know, right, artificial intelligence, we see it in use in our daily lives, you know, on our phones and other things. Um, in industrial systems and specifically in renewable energy, what we are using is we are using the data that is available for 
an asset that may be what we call structured data, like sensors, or unstructured data, like documents, and take that data and use computers to essentially learn the patterns, identify issues before they become bigger challenges, to drive actions from customers, because identifying without taking an action is not really useful. So AI allows us to do that in a very efficient manner versus having humans trying to identify those patterns from the data. Um, specifically on renewables, um, we are doing multiple things, but you know, three areas in which I would kind of put um, you know, what we are able to do for renewable energy. Uh, we have a platform, Ensemble platform, which is a comprehensive asset management platform, which includes monitoring, reporting, and so on. We have also these AI solutions that take the vast amount of data that exists across, especially, you know, renewable energy assets or any energy assets typically, um, and predicting failures before they occur, reducing unexpected downtime, minimizing operational cost, and improving the asset performance. And doing that in a secure way using, say, cybersecurity product that we have, Deep Armor, uh, so that enterprises can do that um, on in a secure manner. In Very interesting. So I, I like the, the discussion about this ensemble asset management platform and the idea of really looking at all of the data together as one and and most importantly not only seeing and learning the patterns to identify the issues but then also taking action so i think that is a that's an important topic how can you give an example of of an area where you have say say identified one of these issues and and what what your your work has done to to i guess find the issue and then what kind of action you were able to take based on what you found out absolutely yeah um you know there are many 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 examples um, but i'll take two specific examples to kind of drive this point home right um a wind farm typically may consist of 50, 100 turbines. There are obviously mega wind farms that has, you know, 300, 400 turbines. But in a fleet of, let's say, one gigawatt, you know, in a very kind of, you know, if an operator owner has one gigawatt, you're talking about 500 turbines, right? Pretty reasonable. Now you get to 10 gigawatts, some of the bigger owner operators, you're looking at 5,000 plus turbines. No human can be looking at that data manually, right? They are generating data every few seconds, essentially, in multiple sensors, hundreds of sensors. Um, so one of the exam, you know, examples that I, I would give is performance. Um, in the cost of energy equation for any energy asset, energy is in the denominator by itself, right? You can improve the energy production. You can bring down the cost of energy. So for wind turbines, one of the very common challenge, a widespread challenge that we see is uh, yaw misalignment. Now, if a turbine is not pointing directly into the wind, it is essentially operating inefficiently. 
But there are many reasons why that may happen. First of all, wind is always changing direction. It is not static. Um, and there are control systems that are trying to um, track the wind and make the prediction. But the multiple reasons why there could be a static misalignment, as we call it, where the turbine just has an offset. And that can happen because a sensor issue, <clears throat> you know, lightning strikes, some things like that, that can cause this, you know, drift. Um, and then there is dynamic, <clears throat> which is changing based on the conditions. So you're not kind of optimally tracking the wind. Um, we have used, um, you know, this AI algorithms that allow turbines to, or us to identify when turbines are misaligned without any human intervention. There are some methods that customers use, you know, for example, a LIDAR, where you now have to either have a LIDAR on top of every turbine, which is very, very expensive, or you can actually have, you know, a few LIDARs, then you're kind of taking that, you know, around the wind farm. But how many times are you going to do that? Like, just, just not practical. So the AI algorithms identified and in a particular wind farm example that I will give, there were about 10% of the turbines that were misaligned. And we were able to increase the energy production for that particular wind farm by 2.5% in that particular situation. Now, you could have this be, you know, 50% of the turbines misaligned and then your energy production improvement could be way more, right? So that's a real case. And we were able to do that simply by just using two months of data. The machine learning algorithms were able to identify using some previously labeled data, some data that we labeled using our physics-based models, and then able to identify these machines as they started showing problems. And in that particular case, close to $50,000 of additional revenue that the customer was able to see. Um, another example, which is a different kind of category, but a failure prediction, right, or failure prevention. Now, the maximum value that we can create for a customer is if we can actually predict a failure a problem before it develops, so we can prevent a failure. So um, in a case where we were uh, using our AI algorithms on a main bearing on a wind turbine, now main bearing on a wind turbine essentially holds the shaft and the, you know, that supports the rotor. And if you have to replace it, you have to bring this huge crane that can cost you somewhere between $150,000 to $250,000. And, and you know, this is one example, but we have had many, many situations where we were able to identify the problem before it developed and uh, in a, with a 90% accuracy. Um, so we do, you know, a few false positives here and there, but the 90% accuracy accurately predict the problem, customer was able to take a maintenance action, and in that particular situation, save upwards of $150,000 in a single uh, case. So those are you know, a couple of concrete examples, hopefully that helps uh, um, audience understand the value that can be driven by predictive analytics. Those are, those are really great examples. I, I'm curious with the Let's talk about this wind turbine misalignment for a little bit more. So if I understand what you're saying correctly, you were able to purely based on on performance data and then utilizing new algorithms and your your understanding of physics-based machine learning AI models, you were able to 
essentially tell the customer when wind turbines started to become misaligned. How much of that is, I guess, how much of that really is weather dependent versus something that is kind of happening all the time in these wind farms? <clears throat> right. Um, I think that's a very good question, Joe. So I think just to kind of separate the two issues, right? So wind is always changing direction. So it is not static, right? But we understand that as wind turbine designers, we, you know, we have algorithms that are tracking the wind, right? Um, so, so that part is happening. So that there is some loss that you'll never be able to track the wind perfectly, right? You're going to have some loss because um, mm -hmm. you there's a balance of how quickly you want to track the wind and how quickly you wear out some of the mechanical parts in what we call the yaw system of these uh, turbines. Um, however, what we are talking about, what we were talking about, is where the algorithm or the control system is working on a wrong information, where, you know, let's say, the calibration is wrong and it doesn't know. It thinks it is tracking the wind to say zero degree, uh, you know, error because that's the maximum energy production, but it is tracking at say five or seven degree uh, case. Or under certain wind conditions, it is correct, but other wind conditions, it is not correct. So identifying those uh, can be very tricky and using not just the performance data, but there are a lot of signals that we may have available in a turbine. We are able to use all of that to be able to identify or have a machine learning algorithm predict when there is a high probability of a yaw misalignment happening. And that has been, as I said, about 90 to 95% accurate in detecting real cases versus say, you know, a false alarm or something like that. That's really, really fascinating to think about how, how you can go really you're improving upon the existing understanding of that interplay between the wind and the wind turbines and and really seeing seeing how how the performance versus the model going in is actually actually showing the misalignment of these wind turbines i, I and you pointed out the the important the very important part of quickly tracking the wind versus the wear on the mechanical parts. Mm -hmm. That was kind of that second example that you gave failure prevention and prediction. And that just made me, made me start thinking about the idea of, of that, that give and take that optimization of overall energy production versus, versus kind of the lifetime of the, of the infrastructure and of the equipment. Is that something that goes into this kind of predictive analytics? So I guess more of a more of a life cycle analysis and production uh, in oil and gas we call it a production decline curve. So I guess this would be something similar to that where it's a production forecasting for the future. Absolutely. Yeah, you hit uh, hit it correctly, right? I would call, you know, there are four stages of what I call, um, you know, I'm at just using the term predictive analytics, right? But uh, four stages of what we call asset performance management. You know, one is kind of where we used to be, what happened, right? What happened in the past, obviously, it's very important to understand that 
to make some improvements in the future, right? Now we are at a stage we are able to predict what is going to happen in your future, right? There is the third part, which is a little bit similar to the second stage, which is prescriptive, right? Which is, well, when, when you're predicting something's going to happen, what action you want to take? I think you're kind of talking about even the fourth uh, stage, what you know we call the optimization, where you want to go, right? So not only predicting what is going to happen, what, what are the trade-offs that you are playing with, right? And having cost curves essentially for how much energy loss you have, you can bear and how much is cost of let's say part wearing out, that leads to an optimization problem. You know, I can simply thought of that. And it appears in every single place. Another example, which is slightly you know different, is energy storage. Energy storage is becoming a bigger and bigger play. As we all know, batteries don't like a lot of charging and discharging. But at the same time, you may get a lot of revenue benefit if you are able to supply electricity when the prices are high, that means discharging, and charging when you know prices are low. So there is, you know, in an unconstrained case, you could just essentially charge and discharge anytime you want. Obviously, that will lead to batteries declining very, very rapidly in their health. So, so you have an optimization problem. So, it, you know, so we are absolutely going to that stage of optimization and working with many customers on kind of taking that next step of taking the predictive analytics outputs, using these trade-offs and optimizing the operations. That's really cool. And I think that's important because there's, as, as you pointed out with that asset performance management, you can do the prescriptive analytics. And when I think of something like, like my car, whenever I'm, whenever I'm changing the oil or changing belts in it, that I guess would be more of a prescriptive analytics. I know that it needs to be changed. So I change it. So I don't have a problem, but I'm not necessarily, I'm not thinking about what's my fuel mileage. Am I getting, getting more use out of my car by doing this? I just don't want to end up broken down on the side of the road. Whereas going that next step, optimizing, that's really where you get the, where you get that extended performance and that, that additional life. And more importantly, that additional profit is what is ultimately what we're looking for in the business world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is, I think, where the industry is going, especially renewable energy industry, uh, the cost decline has been, you know, very, very rapid. And a lot of that was driven by um, the supply chain, right? Um, we have a lot of the, the scale effect, a lot of, you know, solar panels, a lot of wind turbines being produced. So it led to, and the technology improvement, of course, nonetheless, um, when I was, uh, you know, started my career in the industry, um, a wind turbine roughly, and again, you know, just kind of using rough numbers, uh, you know, $1,500 per kilowatt of kind of capital cost. It is down to $600 per kilowatt. Right, it's more than two x reduction already. Now we are at a stage where some of those technology improvements, you know, they're starting to not show as much impact or even the scale. Right, so now you have a lot of um, opportunities to essentially how you operate these assets, 
and that's kind of where this optimization, how you operate your wind farm, you know, do you operate each individual turbine to maximize its power production, or do you use these wind farm as a collective of 100, 200 machines and optimize them to operate to produce the maximum energy collectively, right? Or greedy algorithm versus a kind of a cooperative algorithm. So there's a lot of areas that we are, you know, kind of looking at and working, you know, where MLAI is going to be the, frankly, the only way we will be able to scale these solutions. Um, so yeah, no, it's a, it's a fascinating area where we are going. Uh, in, Technically very challenging, but at the same time, definitely doable, especially with AI. Yes, yes. So you have me convinced. We we can utilize AI and machine learning to to optimize and, and make wind farms better and and really renewable energy better. I I am curious though. We we just taught, touched on the price per kilowatt for for installed wind turbines from the from the supply chain manufacturing aspect as we talk about this idea of optimizing something like wind farms do you have any any hard numbers on things like the the increases of efficiency we touched on that earlier and something like the lowering of greenhouse gas emissions yeah, so um, there are, I mean, there's obviously a range, right, of, uh, uh, you know, the improvement. And again, I, I think that's typically driven by who is operating the asset. But at the end of the day, somebody is operating the asset. So let's assume whoever is operating the asset responsible for that, they are using AI, right? Um, I'll, I'll take an example of, uh, you know, um, wind, for example, here. Um, I think the IEA estimate is that per kilowatt hour of wind um, leads to about 600 grams of uh, CO2 reduction. There's 750 gigawatts of installed capacity at the end of last year uh, worldwide, you know, using some rough capacity factor numbers and so on. I mean, we're talking about 11 or 1200 billion, um, you know, uh, kilograms of carbon that we are actually able to uh, remove from um, from atmosphere. So if we are even talking about one to two percent improvement in there, right, just simple one percent improvement, you're talking already one to 1.2 billion uh, grams of carbon that we can actually remove just by improving it by one percent. Think about it, a billion grams, now in tons, you know, you can convert into tons. So um, there's a huge value to every percentage, not only in reduction of cost of energy, but as you asked, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, which is obviously one of the reasons we are so passionate about renewable energy. Yeah, and that's it. It is fun to think about, or I guess almost these numbers are so large, and it is a it's amazing to think about even that one or 2% increase ends up ultimately having a very significant impact on the amount of, of CO2 that we are not emitting into the atmosphere. And it's absolutely, I, I do want to go back to that number that you said, you ultimately saw a two and a half percent increase in energy output. 
So even there, it the one to two percent really is a it is a conservative value in terms of of really what what kind of increase in energy production that you can get utilizing these these large scale predictive analytics and and complete asset management. That is totally a fair point, uh, Joe. I think, yeah, that is what is a conservative number. And that's basically based on some of the technology that is already available, that has been proven. But there's so much more to be uh, done and that we are doing at Spark Cognition. Um, Just on on that, I will, you know, mention, um, you know, we have uh, in Spark Cognition a research group um, that's, you know, led by Dr. Bruce Porter, who's two-time chairman of UT Austin's computer science where we are looking at these new challenges of how to kind of take this technology even further, right? So that's to kind of get to that five, six percent kind of improvement, we will have to, uh, you know, develop some of these new uh, technologies that is totally doable, especially with some of the uh, technology that's already available and applied to other areas. Um, so, yeah, uh, so absolutely that one to two percent is what I call a conservative number. That is, that's really cool. Something that I'm thinking about as you, as you talk about this, I'm curious, earlier you mentioned battery storage. Are you guys looking at any, any type of, of generation plus storage and doing that kind of full, full, uh, asset management, life cycle assessment to, to, is that one of the ways you are really trying to increase that that percentage of efficiency? Yeah, so um, you know that is exactly where the industry is going. So at Spark Cognition, you know we are a software solution provider, right? So we don't obviously operate the assets, but our customers are operating these assets. And you're right; in some cases, they are operating these assets kind of as standalone and using our platform and our technology. Now they are able to look at you know value that can be created by combining these assets or operations right um so energy storage is going to grow dramatically in the you know next years because it does something amazing which has been one of the challenge with renewable energy wind and solar especially uh, where it is intermittent right we know the intermittency so it's not like it was not known when they were put in place but it is still intermittent. It cannot be dispatched. And energy storage changes that whole equation. And it is growing so rapidly um, in terms of the number of storage projects that are in development or are being put in production. It, it is mind-boggling. And we have customers who have you know, storage, solar um, independent, sometimes solar storage combined. And in some cases, we are seeing wind, solar, and storage as hybrid projects um so yes uh, that is kind of where the industry is going and our solution totally supports all these three including hydro in fact the only one we don't support joe is uh geothermal uh, yet but maybe you you can work with you to change that <laughs> yeah i was i was going to be asking that towards the the end of our conversation and i since you brought it up what kind of what kind of other areas do you see your solutions in this in this kind of full scale assessment 
being applied to specifically in in the energy transition things like oil and gas oil and gas to geothermal or or some of these other renewable energy ideas such as hydrogen with natural gas blending biomass plants and all kind of the whole the whole rainbow of of renewable energy yeah um so in spark cognition you know again we are an ai solution provider uh, where we focus very much on energy uh, transition uh, oil and gas has been um you know a traditionally a uh, customer base uh, for spark cognition and a lot of the customers are interested in how do we uh, transition how do we take the you know technology to do so so hydrogen uh, is an area growth area it is still at early stages as you um, you know uh, so it is still um, at that stage where we are starting to understand the you know hydrogen what are the challenges and so on and how ai can be used it's not quite at i would say the production stage um, you know, for us at this point but it is an area where we definitely are working we're also working with the customers on how they can offset their carbons, you know, carbon footprint, and so on. So there are many ways in which Spark Cognition is working with customers, besides just obviously the renewable in this energy transition economy. Very cool. So I want to I want to talk about two, I guess, I guess you could call them controversial topics, things that that whenever we talk about renewables ultimately these kind of questions get brought up one of these specifically really focused on on solar is the duck curve whenever we talk about solar or whenever we see a presentation on renewable energy the duck curve is almost always there this highlighting the the issue between load balancing and load forecasting and and i guess the supply and demand so what i guess what's your take on it and how how does the the tools that spark cognition uh the tools that you guys provide how does that work towards looking at that energy supply versus demand yeah um you know fair question i think that is um you know one of the areas where i would say um I look at it as an engineering problem, and I think that's how the industry has looked at it, right? Um, I'm based in California, and that's where we had, you know, the duck curve issue kind of start where we had so much uh, production for your audience, you know, who may not uh, know about this. Uh, during the peak, you know, noon, uh, we have so much solar production that there is essentially um, kind of pricing going into negative. Right, you have so much um, uh, production, not as much demand at that point, um, and the production or the demand peak shifted to kind of late evening, if you will. Um, now that I think is a problem that actually kind of led to maybe even storage, you know, kind of getting the acceleration that it is getting. Imagine now you have storage assets that are essentially operating in parallel with the solar assets. When you have excess, excess production, you can actually store it and then you can dispatch it when it's required, right? So it, if you look at it just from an engineering solution perspective, it was a problem, but I think in the next few years, it is not going to be a problem, especially with these storage assets. And 
And that's where Spark Cognition is working currently in how do you integrate renewables into the grid and identifying using forecasting, what is going to be the production, what's going to be the demand forecasting. And we are working uh, in early stages of developing technology to identify areas where customers can deploy storage assets to maximize revenues. But there is, uh, it is kind of an evolving area, but it is not going to be a problem in the next five years. You will not hear about Duck Curve as a problem because of the storage assets that are going to be built um, that can now store the energy and then dispatch it. Good answer. I think that's a, I think that that is something that if you're not thinking about the AI and the machine learning and the forecasting aspects, most people would think, let's just put on more storage and that will solve the the problem. But as you point out at the end there, it storage is expensive and ultimately it's about maximizing that revenue. The goal is not to recharge and discharge batteries and and ultimately have them have a very short shelf life so i think it's important to to start adding those into the entire load forecast and and predictive maintenance and analytics and and everything that you guys are working on i this is this is just something that came to mind how does how does electric vehicles work into this as we start putting electric vehicles on the grid and start having what is in my mind a an even larger load trying to charge these very large batteries yeah no that's uh that's uh, an interesting question you know I'll, this is a uh, an area of obviously a lot of excitement right in terms of decarbonization transportation sector is a big uh, contributor um so um in going to electric vehicles is absolutely you know one of the key elements there obviously as you pointed out that will also cause a huge demand right of electric generation now, if that electric generation is coming from, you know, carbon sources, then you kind of, you know, it's not really solving the problem. So, so we need to go more and more into, you know, clean sources as much as possible to, uh, to, to enable that decarbonization goal that we have. So, um, <clears throat> I think there are areas that, again, we are working uh, as, you know, again, as an AI solution provider, we are working with EV vehicle companies especially now, you know, to kind of maintain the batteries and so on. But I think there is an area which is kind of developing, looking at these, um, the EVs as storage, if you think about it, right? That can you actually now uh, charge these batteries from on EVs at the time when, you know, there's more production and less demand, right? So they can actually be viewed as a solution also in, in that sense. So we do have to solve the challenge of, okay, as the electricity generation demand increases, then that comes from cleaner sources. But at the same time, these EVs, in fact, can actually help kind of balance this grid in many ways. And there is obviously, they can also be a dispatchable source. Not all EVs allow that, or are at least not yet, uh, but they can at least be able to use to be to essentially balance the grid when the production is very high and demand is 
So, um, so it is it is an interesting area, very very complicated. If you imagine the grid dynamics of uh, now having to manage each of these individual points as storage assets that are operating, how do you do that with thousands and millions of these EVs out there, and to kind of use each one of them as a data point to optimize a certain grid? It, it's it's absolutely exciting and. Uh, it's an area where we have done a little bit of work, not as much, uh, but you know, I, I think that is an area where uh, you know our involvement is going to grow in near future. Yeah, and I just think about the about the aspect of of as as you were talking about using those as dispatchable power and storage, and now thinking about as you are going and plugging your. EV in to now give off power once you get home, as opposed to recharging your car at night. How does that end up feeding into whether it's net metering or, or really the life, the life cycle of that battery that you have put that investment into that is now ultimately giving grid support to the larger community. I think it's, it's, not a question I am I'm trying to answer or get an answer from you today, but I think it is a very that just adds into multiple layers of the complexity that you point out. Just having those individual every single car being a data point on top of the rest of the existing grid. And now to add in another layer of the economics behind all of it and the individual investment versus the buying and selling of the electricity itself it's a very it is a very complicated problem and and i'm glad that that somebody else is working on it like spark cognition (laughs) you're absolutely right it is a very complicated challenge Uh, you know there has been a little bit of just to kind of you know give uh, some optimism around that right i mean the same issue was with the solar panels Uh, you know i have solar panels up on my roof here and, uh, you know, during the time, you know, we are supplying to the grid. So there's the net metering that you've mentioned. So I think there are, you know, parallels that have been done, but, you know, obviously it's a little bit different now uh, with this, but it's doable. I, again, look at it as an engineering challenge, and especially with the kind of data analytics, the AI that, you know, we are developing and some others are developing, I see it is something that can be solved. You know, you know, will it be optimal in the first version? No, right? But it is certainly something that uh, can be solved. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Just a quick interruption to share a few things that are going on in October. We have not one, but two industry mixers this month, one on October 7th and one on the October 21st. Just check out our social. They're always great events, and the money that you help us raise goes to fight human sex trafficking, and you get to network with oil and gas executives. We have a new show that just came out, Energy Transition Podcast. Also remember, we have 14 other podcasts for your listening pleasure. And then the end of this year, we'll be full media partners for the 23rd World Petroleum Congress, December 5th through 9th. The World Petroleum Congress has not been in Houston over 30 years. So make sure you put space in your calendar. Come check us out. And then finally, join the OGDN Street Team on LinkedIn. It's our all-volunteer group that's really going places. I'll see you again next month. So 
one other topic that I've been seeing more recently on social media and in the news is this idea of early retirement of solar panels and windmills and how that is changing the the cost estimates and the payback periods of of these different technologies i'm just curious from from your position i guess what is your take on this and i don't really understand what what they're talking about so i was curious if you could give me some insight on those ideas of this early retirement of solar panels and windmills yeah um you know i'm not um, not on focus too much on social media uh, but i have seen you know uh, some commentary around that and uh, look uh, i i am a pragmatist in in this regard that in the industry and in renewable energy industry we have to be aware of the shortcomings we have right um, and uh, their challenges and how to deal with their challenges so solar panels or wind turbines failing prematurely um, it is no different than any other industry, right? In in some sense, so you have cars where you know you may have cars, you know the parts fail and you're replacing the parts. So if you think about it, just in that uh, regard, you know, sure, right? I mean that that is what I would say is happening. Um, the reliability of a, a wind farm or a solar farm has improved dramatically. In fact. You know, your audience may be surprised to know there are turbines that are operating here in Palm Springs, California, um, or some other parts, which are, you know, here from 1990, right? So they're more than 20 years old, which is typically a life cycle of an asset is 20 years, but they've been operating for more than 20, 25 years now. Uh, so it is not that, you know, there are not examples of that now during these 20 to 25 years, they needed some part replacements, maintenance, but that is all kind of part of the cost that you include. Um, so I, I think it is really how do you now use, you know, the analytics that we have to be able to uh, prevent some of the problems from happening that can lead to early failures. And that is totally starting to happen and showing fruits right now where we are able to identify these problems using the technology, you know, such as spark cognition has developed to be able to predict problems. So you are not leading to early failures. Um, now there's manufacturing defects and so on that is going to be part of the equation, but the reliability of a typical solar or wind farm has gone up dramatically from even you know five, seven years ago. That's very interesting and thank you for that that insight because that is one of those things that that i do wonder about every once in a while as we talk about we we see it right now in oil and gas especially with with the unconventional resource plays there are some plays that that are not giving the payback that they originally thought and and people use that same idea to to almost demonize wind and solar that this idea that the wind mills and the solar panels don't last as long as you as you really think they do and it's important to i think it's it's good to hear it that there are some windmills that are still going even 20 25 30 years later 
and more importantly, the aspect that we can now predict maintenance issues and then prevent those early failures utilizing utilizing this kind of full cycle cycle and full asset management absolutely absolutely and i think that's uh, you know part of the uh, you know industry has to do a better job of you know educating people you know you drive through palm springs uh, you know or bakersfield you will actually see uh, you know wind turbines that are pretty old and some of them are not operating and that i think is what you know gets shown on uh, social media you know turbine not operating but the fact that this is a 25 year old turbine and is potentially waiting for a repowering because a lot of these sites are being repowered uh, by new machines right um, right here in altamont pass in california we had these machines put in 1992 3 something like that and uh, you know two three years ago uh, they were all repowered with a brand new machine same exact you know area but now they are much more efficient and uh, you know so so that's the life cycle of an asset and it's taken into account um, but uh, absolutely these last for 20 years with obviously some replacement and maintenance costs built in there very good so i guess one one last idea with with this is what is the i guess what's the limiting factor here in terms of improvements and efficiencies how how much can we truly improve utilizing the the full asset management and the predictive analysis um that's a very good question, uh, Joe. Uh, I think there is obviously a limit to what um, predictive analytics can provide. Um, I think we are nowhere close to that limit. I think there is a lot of scope of improvement that we can bring to operations of um, renewable energy assets. Um, and we briefly touched upon that, you know, in terms of kind of optimization how we can use the power of the data and the collective uh, to improve the overall production, right? Integration into the grid. So I think we are what I would call still at the early stages of the value capture uh, using uh, predictive analytics. What is the limit I think is really, um, there are human factors, there are, um, you know, other things that you cannot control or AI or predictive analytics cannot control weather and so on, right? Um, so, so I think those would be kind of the factors that kind of create a limit. I don't know what the limit is, but there are definitely other external factors that will uh, cause, you know, a limit essentially for the value that we can capture. Uh, besides some theoretical limits, right? Of a wind turbine cannot produce more than 60% efficiency, right? In terms of the amount of power the wind has, um, electrical losses and so on. Uh, but there is, uh, you know, we are at, let's, let me give you some numbers today, what I would call on, a, for example, for a wind farm, uh, at the, the one to one and a half million dollars per gigawatt in terms of the energy uh, or in terms of the value that we are creating for the customer. That number, I think, can easily be two and a half to $3 million, right? 
in, in an offshore environment. And again, when I'm using these numbers, they might be for onshore here, a function of the revenue per kilowatt hour, right? For offshore assets, that can be very high already. But so point is that there is still, I would say another 100% in uh, value that we can actually capture. Um, and then we will probably start to run into some of these limits. Okay. And I, I think that's a, that shows that there's plenty of room to continue improving. And I think that's, that's really cool that there, there is still that, that possibility. And really the, the limit is so far away that, that we can't even figure it out. Not yet. Not yet. So along those same lines, where, where do you think spark cognition and this, this full asset management kind of machine learning and AI, where do you think that is going to be in the next five to 10 years? Um, I think uh, there is, as I said, you know, um, as we add a lot of these distributed sources of energy, as we add EVs, the scale at which, you know, even IEA estimates kind of really underestimated at how fast we are adding these. I think adding a lot of AI to grid, grid management is going to be one of the key areas, right? And I'm talking specifically in the energy generation and uh, transmission area, of course, right? EVs and, um, you know, transportation itself, right? Or self-driving, you know, there's a lot of other areas, but if we stick to the energy generation, transmission and distribution, um, the, how do you take these distributed sources, either they are utility scale or they are, you know, behind the meter like solar panels and uh, use that in next five, 10 years, if we can really use the technology, the AI technology to integrate them into the grid in an optimal fashion, that is going to be the biggest bang for the buck, I would say. If the technology is already there, a lot of these sources already exist, use efficient software algorithms, machine learning algorithms, reinforcement learning to be able to integrate these in an optimal fashion. I think that's that's an area where I feel which will provide us the maximum value for uh, in next kind of five to 10 years. That's really, I think that's a, it's a very good answer. And earlier you asked, you said that, that spark cognition is not working in geothermal at all. And I think that as you were talking about this grid management and integration, that's immediately where my mind went. Because one of the things that I work on with my company at, at my company, PetroLearn, is the idea of distributed energy generation from existing oil and gas wells, converting those to geothermal. And here we're talking about, about scales of, of 100 kilowatts up to a megawatt of power. And, and so it's not, it's not quite utility scale power, but... If there are, say, hundreds to thousands of these wells, you're now talking about another 100, 200, 2,000 data points 
all generating now a a baseload power that you have to figure out how to integrate into the energy mix on top of the well, really that would be below supporting the the EVs and all of the additional renewables. So it it's something that I am I'm very passionate about the idea of distributed energy generation and and the understanding of the grid management and integration of of these distributed energies absolutely yeah no i i think um, you know uh, uh, one thing that we have learned in you know and i have learned in the last 15 years uh, being in you know renewables people have always underestimated i recall when i was doing my phd on uh, wind energy you know it was like oh you know wind energy cannot be more than 10 percent or just you know renewable cannot be more than 10 percent of the grid I think as of um, I think last month, uh, if the uh, installed capacity in the United States, um, I think it was about twenty-seven percent was uh, renewables. So, so you can see, right? I mean, it has. We've always kind of done that, and similarly with geothermal, there are technical challenges, and you probably know a lot about that. But it is an area where, um, you know, with investment, that is an area where it would that resource would make sense under you know, in certain geographies like Europe uh, and in parts of US. So I think that's the way we need to look at uh, energy as not just like, hey, look, it just doesn't work everywhere. No, maybe not, but it works under certain areas, right? In certain areas, that is going to be the economical way to provide energy generation. So, um, mm -hmm. yep, exactly. Well, with that, I've got a few more final kind of rapid fire questions. So let's jump into those. The first one, what is the most important book you've ever read? Oh, <laughs> that's a, something. let me think about that. Well, one of the books that has had a true kind of impact on me and, you know, as I read, you know, it's a book, I don't know, maybe a lot of people don't know about it. It's called Guns, Germs, and Steel uh, by Jerry Diamond. It's uh, kind of an interesting uh, book of uh, kind of humanity's evaluation, you know, evolution over, uh, you know, last, you know, um, many centuries. And what, what factors have led to, you know, where we are today, right? Geography, environment, you know, biology, so it's a pretty interesting book. I, I, I love, uh, you know, how, um, how he looks at uh, some of these, um, you know, factors. And yeah, just a book that I have really, really enjoyed. I pick it up once in a while to read it again. So yeah, love that book. I like that book recommendation. I actually have that on my bedside table. That is, it's about book number four in the list of books that I need to read. So now I'm more excited to get to it. <laughs> so the the next question is, when will we be net zero as a society? Oh, um, well, um, I think I am an optimistic um, person by nature. I almost think I am in the camp where I think in next 20 to 25 years, we will be at net zero. And, and I, I say that 
you know, with the countercurrents that we are kind of seeing recently, um, you know, 2021 has seen, you know, a growth in the fossil fuel usage and so on. Um, but I think the, there is a huge, uh, tremendous momentum towards this clean energy shift and uh, net zero uh, growth where corporates, governments, everyone is kind of, you know, pretty much behind, I believe 70, 75% of, uh, you know, uh, U.S. Uh, um, population believes that, you know, that is the right way to go. And, and I think that is true for a lot of other places. So, yeah, I would say about 25 years from now or by 2050 for sure. 2050 is a, a pretty popular answer. And I, I like the the way that you reason through it. And as you pointed out earlier, the electric vehicle adoption has been significantly faster than what was originally predicted. So here, as we as we are going through the energy transition and we've set targets for 2050, it, it's almost like there's no reason to think that we can't hit them because we've shown that we can hit these, these targets before in terms of other technologies and other adoptions. So I, I like your optimism and I like your your reasoning and, and thought process. So the the last question is, what one question do you have for me? Well, I think we briefly talked about that, but uh, want to definitely understand. So when can we see geothermal assets getting to kind of the megawatt scale or more than megawatt scale that, you know, is in kind of production, commercial production? Um, and when can we get that on Spark Cognition platform? Yeah. So when it comes to geothermal, geothermal is, there are, there are large power plants in the anywhere from 10 megawatts. I think the largest power plant is 320 megawatts. And those are really focused on, on the, the ring of fire. So tectonically active volcanic zones and then in extensional settings like Nevada going over into Utah and really the western US is is all part of the basin and range province so that is that is where traditional geothermal is and where you have very large power plants that are that are a more akin to your traditional base load power that you expect what what we were talking about earlier is the idea that there are all of these oil and gas wells in in basins really throughout the US and and all over the world some of these wells are producing hot enough water and high enough water cuts or enough water and hot enough that they can actually produce this small amount of electricity in the hundreds of kilowatts range when when will those be on the grid and when would it would those be benefited by spark cognition i think the the answer should be immediately the the key there is really figuring out how to optimize those and how to how to show that they are profitable and the idea of a a full system management and kind of a life cycle analysis. I think that 
that feeds directly into that because as as an example we've got we being petrolearn we have looked at wells that have a production stream of water at a temperature that we could very easily generate electricity with but the key important part is it is it is still it it's still small enough that it is not a i guess it it is considered more of a it's considered more more effort and more risk than potential profit and that is where the i think that's the key hurdle of getting the first project done in the u.s and then after the first project i think the first 10 projects come and then after those first 10 we're off to the races I see. I see. So, if I understand, and again, we, you know, is it is more like I would call distributed source of energy equivalent to small solar or so on, right? But the the utility scale solar, there's a pretty decent installed capacity worldwide, right, on geothermal. Yeah. So there are the utility scale power that is is pretty pretty well known and pretty focused geographically into into those tectonically active areas like California, Nevada, up along the West Coast. The distributed power is something that is that smaller scale that is not quite, that is still in a very early stage. The kind of every piece has been developed. There are no real technological challenges associated with it it's really just putting all the pieces together that is where the where the current hurdles lie interesting interesting well that is uh, definitely an exciting challenge as you know said and um, you know could have huge rewards so yes yes well sandeep thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the energy transition podcast is there anything any last last thoughts or any last words you want to you want to say well um, first of all thank you for uh, having me on the show um, to share uh, a little bit of uh, what we are doing at spark cognition and our work on uh, uh, energy transition um, you know the only thing i will leave your uh, audience with today is that uh, you know, renewable energy is definitely uh, economical. It has become much more economical in the last 10 years, and that uh, growth continues. Uh, look at it as an engineering challenge, and uh, we all need to work together to make it uh, even more affordable uh, so that we can really cut down uh, greenhouse gases. All right. Well, thank you again, Sandeep, and thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're still listening, I can only assume that you have enjoyed the show, so please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple things will help these stories reach a wider audience. And if you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, I encourage you to connect with OGGN, the Oil and Gas Global Network. You can do that on LinkedIn or visit us at OGGN.com. And if you're in the Houston area, go check out the Canon co-working space. I work from there while I'm in Houston, 
and it's where we host our OGGN monthly industry mixers. If you mention OGGN, you get a free day pass and you can see what I'm talking about. Until next time, remember, keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.